All right. Well, let me, let me pray, and then um, we'll jump in. Father, thank you once again for bringing us here on the Lord's Day. Lord, thank you for all the beauty of spring. Uh, Lord, thank you for your many, many blessings to this church. Thank you for this great space we have to meet in this morning. Thank you for all the volunteers uh, who make this possible. Father, thank you most importantly for Jesus, who suffered and died in our place and rose from the grave victoriously. Father, we pray that as we uh, discuss uh, science and faith one more time, that you'd be glorified. Father, we pray that this would serve uh, to strengthen our faith and give us confidence uh, in the integrity and truthfulness of Scripture. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this morning um, is our last official Sunday school for the season. Uh, next Sunday is the members' meeting. Hopefully, you'll all come to that at 845. Um, in the last roughly 20 or 25 sessions, we've been going over apologetic issues. We spent the last three weeks um, talking about science and faith. In particular, we've been talking about evolution and creation, and I've been critiquing evolution. Um, and my, my training is, uh, my undergrad was in history with an insurance minor, um, a couple master's degrees and a doctorate, but not in science. Um, these guys all have uh, scientific training, so I thought it'd be good uh, for you guys to hear from this esteemed panel. So let's, let's talk about uh, who we have up here. So uh, why don't you guys uh, introduce yourselves uh, and tell us why you are qualified to be on this panel. So, so t t tell, us, tell us where you studied, what, what you studied. You're not on. Red. I, I, I promise they're really smart. Um, they're, they're just not. <laughs> He's not a U of I graduate, Joe Van Kara says. Can, can, you, can you sound off nice and loud, Terry? Yeah. Go Cougs, the Harvard of the Palouse. And what classes did, did you teach when you...
Do, do any of these mics work? None of them work. Huh. Mama sings bass. Hey, there we go. Uh, if, Joe, if Joe's works, we, we can just use one mic, I suppose. Joe, is yours? Yeah. Can you hear me now? There we go. Ray's is working too. Okay. Koi, is yours working? Okay. Well, uh, you, just, just. Uh, Test, test, test. Oh. oh, there we go. Okay. Again, Hello. they are a very intelligent panel. <laughs> okay, Koi, go ahead. Tell us who you are. I'm Koi Fullen, and is that too much? No, no just, just hold it really close, and he'll adjust. Okay. Um, I'm a physician, family medicine doctor. Uh, I grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. For college, my, I did three years at Liberty University when it first began back in the 70s, and that had a big impact on me on origins. I went in the Navy, and then I went to Emory University, received my Bachelor of Medical Science from Emory University uh, as a physician's assistant. Went in the Army for four years, got frustrated with the rank, went to medical school in Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, and then did my residency at East Tennessee State University. And after that, I was an ER doc for four years in Southwest Virginia, and then to pay out some student loans, I came out here to Washington State, work on Indian reservations for four to six years, which has now been 26 years. Wow. And I'm at the VA now, uh, uh, dealing with the Cerner issues, as you probably heard, the electronic health record. So that's my background. So, so Koi, of, of the disciplines, uh, chemistry, biology, astronomy, physics, which one's your favorite? I love them all. I, when I moved out here in 1996, we were in OMAC, Washington, and we were in, uh, we, I bought a little cheap telescope and looked at the moon and it got blown away. So I took on this interest in astronomy, and it, it's an observational science. Uh, and I really have a deep, keen interest in astrophysics or astronomy itself. Um, I've, I know two astrophysicists down at WSU, uh, Mike, uh, Mike uh, uh, Mike Allen and Guy Worthy, uh, they teach down at WSU. Uh, I'm a member of the Spokane Astronomy Club. To me, astronomy is a fascinating field. It gives glory to God. Amen. Yeah. But, but I love biology, too. I'm a member of the Discovery Society at the Discovery Institute in Seattle. Also uh, support uh, Reasons to Believe mm -hmm. down in California with Hugh Ross and his group. They have another, they, they're the Christian ministry. And... Uh, and they have they serve a purpose and discovery serves a purpose also. Very good. Joe. I'm Joe Van Kara. I grew up about a hundred miles from here, down toward Moscow, Idaho, on a little farm. My dad taught at WSU. I graduated from the University of Idaho in microbiology. Which which is the Yale of the Palouse. <laughs> Wazoo is the Harvard of the Palouse. More just just to be clear. Just to be clear. <laughs> uh, but um I, um, I have been a physician for 30 years. Um, my specialty is dermatology, with a subspecialty in Mohs micrographic surgery or dermatologic surgery. And I uh, got my, after the University of Idaho, which I graduated in microbiology, I did a year of research in biochemistry, and then I went to the Uniformed Services University School of Medicine in Washington, D.C., Bethesda, Maryland, to be specific, and uh, graduated there in 1992. And then 
I traveled a lot with my wife, uh, Texas and North Dakota and California and Texas, and eventually got out and did a fellowship and came back here. Very good. Okay. So if you have an emergency of any kind, go to Koi. If you have skin issues, go to Joe. Ray. <laughs> they don't talk about this. In, in polite company. Ray has helped me many times. That's all I'm going to say about Ray. Okay, Ray, tell us who you are. Yeah, so yeah, Ray Lance. Um, I went to undergrad also at University of Idaho. In fact, you know, he and I were both uh, you know, in, the, in the same zoology class. We'll probably have a comment about the anti-theist professor we had there. But I got a, a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and then went on to Uniform Services University, which is essentially, as he said, the military medical school, like West Point for med school. Uh, I was Army, and he was Chair Force. Uh, <laughs> Push-up contest right now. Let's see if you can... <laughs> Uh, and then uh, during medical school, I got involved in uh, molecular biology research, had a chance to, to do um, uh, basically oncogene research and GU cancers, uh, both with, at Walter Reed at Uniform Services University, and then did a residency in urology, and then subsequently went to MD Anderson and did a, uh, a, a urologic oncology fellowship. Uh, after I finished my military time, I went to Eastern Virginia Medical School in Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, eventually became the clinical director of a translational research laboratory in the Leroy Knowles uh, Center for Proteomics and Biomarker Development. So pretty much my whole career has been focused on molecular biology and biomarkers, especially as they relate to uh, GU cancers like prostate cancer, for example. I have uh, over 80 peer-reviewed journal publications. Almost all of those are are you know basically involving molecular biology, so I have a decent understanding of some of these topics. Very good. Okay, guys, I have several questions I want you to answer, and there's four of you, so don't just drone on and on and on and on and on. Um, I may have to cut you off, but um, d describe what it was like in undergrad and grad school to be a Christian um, who believed in intelligent design. Um, were you, were you persecuted? Was it challenging? What were the obstacles you faced being a Christian in grad school that was, that was predominated by evolutionary theory? Terry, you want to start? Um, for my undergraduate at Eastern, you know, honestly, I, I think I was one of those students who was a creationist but without uh, maybe lacking a bit of humility. And, uh, and so I think my undergraduate was, uh, was a challenge. Um, and I, I felt like I was challenging, you know, evolutionary thought. Um, and, but I was doing it at a certain level where, you know, maybe it was, it was too antagonistic. Um, my graduate degree, uh, which I got in the early 2000s, uh, I think the Lord had worked in me. And, and so the, it, it was challenging. Um, however, I think I was more concerned about relationships, and then I would I would challenge maybe worldviews, um, you know, people's underpinnings of what they believe, and uh, and really focused on that, and and became a good question asker. Um, all right, well, why do you believe this? Boy, this looks like such incredible design, and people would even use the term design, 
you know, when they're talking about, especially molecular machines. And um, not to catch people with that, but yeah, that really is an interest, interesting design. And, mm. and so coupling that with relationship and, and, um, and really just challenging people's worldview. How do, how do you have such complexity in organization mm. um, happen uh, by chance right. or through an undirected process? Yeah. And, and I think people, people know the truth. They know that there's structure in organization, that there's a designer. And and I graduate degree, I became much more skilled at asking questions. Good. How about the rest of you guys? What was it like uh, to be a Christian in grad schools and undergrad schools dominated by evolutionary theory? My most memorable experience was my first year in med school. We had freshman uh, medical school biochemistry. Our first exam was carbohydrate metabolism. And I think I spent 40 hours uh, studying I think I got a C plus because C in med school mean you're average. Yeah. So they told you, you get a C, don't feel bad, it's average. Some will get B's, but very few get A's. So I, after the exam, I had two friends. One was a nominal Catholic. The other guy was a, a Jim, was a Jewish in name. And we were discussing the exam and uh, how hard it was. And somehow it led to this. I mentioned that you know, how complex this is, and there's no way this could evolve by random process. They looked at me and said, Coy, what are you, a creationist? <laughs> and uh, I said, well, in a way, uh, yes. Uh, it doesn't have to mean the Earth is you know, 10,000 years old. But, you know, at that time, I believed that. I was a young Earther at that time. But I said, guys, look at this. We just knocked your heads out, for, you know, studying all the carbohydrate metabolism that we've covered the past four weeks, and you just knock off this one little enzyme, the whole thing shuts down or causes mutation. It doesn't, it, it shuts down. And yet, you believe random process brings us about over uh, how many millions of years you throw into it? And they kind of laughed at me a little bit, but you know, I hope we had a good impact on them to think more about it. Yeah. So that was the most memorable experience I had in med medical school. Good. Joe? Firstly, uh, my dad was a professor, so I didn't put professors up on that high pedestal. <laughs> kind of like I used to put the pastors on the high pedestal. Until he met me. <laughs> and, and, you, and your dad taught what at Wazoo? He taught ag agriculture education okay. at okay. WSU. Okay. Anyway, with that, and also not being a baby boomer, I, uh, I always had that Nah, probably trust but verify kind of attitude. We were kind of the ones that were kind of, you know, everyone was losing their jobs in the 80s and stuff like that. So we were kind of a little skeptical about things. And uh, two incidents that I recall from college that really were momentous in a way. One was in uh, zoology, which is the, uh, or vertebrate anatomy class which is kind of a weeder out course for pre-med students, where the professor who, to be eloquent, was a real jerk, um, would stood up in a class of about as big as this, maybe 100, 110, 120 people, or more than that, and he, he said, uh, basically, you're a fool if you believe in Christianity. You are a fool. And I... Uh, thought about it, and I decided to stand up in the auditorium. 
basically said, I believe in Christianity, and I'm not a fool. <laughs> Enough said. And then said. I was Mark. I was Mark Mann. Wow. This guy, I memorized every, every breath he said and every belt she did. And uh, I got an A in that class, nice. and he was not happy. But uh, <laughs> if you're going to stand up, but after, after that class, I remember about 15 people coming up around me, huddling around me and saying, I'm so glad you said that, Joe. Mm. And I'm kind of going, quit hiding behind the boulders. Come on, guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's how it was. And then the second incident I had was, I won't mention his name. I just looked him up this morning. He's now passed away, but he was a Unitarian guy that started something in Moscow, but he was a professor in philosophy, and I took this class in bioethics. It's a three or 400 level course, and I took it pass-fail because I knew that if I was, I wanted to keep my A average up, and I didn't want to get a B or C because I didn't agree with them, so I just took it for fun. But um, he was on his pedestal saying, I know when life began. I did the PhD research papers on this, oscilloscope studies, all this stuff back in, this is circa 1986 or so. And he said life began at, I think it was like 12 weeks or 16 weeks, something like that. But now, and I remember thinking, well, this is the limits of science at this time. Who says it's not going to be 14 weeks? 11 weeks, 10 weeks. I remember arguing with them on that one. Now we know it's what. They can now test life begins at almost a couple hours after conception, you know, two, two days, something like that. But, I mean, life doesn't begin. It's what we can test it at right, right now. Life begins at conception, but the thing is we can test it now early on. But I remember that, and to bring it home is that at the end of the uh, – semester he came up to me and said you should have took this for a grade Van Kara. Mm -hmm. and so I was kind of like yeah I didn't trust myself that <laughs> go ahead Ray yeah so uh, we, we share that actually same experience in zoology because we we're in the same class together uh, and so was my wife Carrie so why didn't you stand up with Joe I, you know, I, I don't recall. I, 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 I believe me. I will say this though. I, I feel like I was persecuted more than he was, or I was dumber than he was because I got a beat. So I'll say that because this guy was brutal. You know, and I remember answering uh, one a, a question to my, uh, you know, the way the question was answered in the test. I had, to, I felt like I had to ask answer it with integrity, and of course he, he failed me for the answer that I put forward and. So I just remember it being a lot more difficult, but he was clearly a, a Richard Dawkins-type anti-theist, yeah. no question about it. But I did get to meet my wife, Carrie, as a result of that class, so <laughs> it was the best class I ever took at the University of Idaho. That's the right answer. <laughs> um, the other thing I'll say is, having been uh, heavily involved in um, academics you know, throughout my uh, career as I went forward, working a lot with, you know, hardcore researchers, you know, PhD types in molecular biology, there's, there's a lot of skepticism about evolution mm -hmm. among really intelligent people. And, 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 of course, I had my opportunities to engage people who were hardcore, you know, in that respect. But most of them aren't hardcore. Most of them actually are skeptical themselves because as a scientist, you're, you're, you're bred to be skeptical. But 
a lot like the marasma theory uh, in the 1800s, which you know, people's careers were destroyed. Impressive people like Louis Pasteur, for example, you know, completely destroyed, or or the the Vibria cholera, you know, Broad Street epidemic, you know, is as as another example where you know the group think in science turned out to be absolutely wrong. There's lots of evidence of human groupthink being fantastically wrong, right. you know. And so this is another example of that. So I think a lot of these folks, even though they're persecuted in many respects, if they voice those ideas, they lose uh, academic tenure, tenure track opportunities, and, and many times they're even dismissed from, from departments. If you read a, a fantastic uh, book by Douglas Axe, uh, which I, I highly recommend, um, it's, you know, he, in this book he basically describes how he lost a position at Oxford University because of, he, of direct research that he was doing that, counter, that countered the, you know, some of the, the basic uh, fu fundamental thoughts about evolution. So I think that, that it's real. Yeah. Persecution's real. Yeah. Okay, guys, next question. Um, when and why did you come to the conviction that evolution was false? So when did that happen in your intellectual and spiritual journey? You can go ahead and answer it in any order you want. Okay. Just dive in. Go ahead. For, for me, I was, I was actually raised Catholic, and, uh, and so I had a, um, yeah, I believed even at a young age that God created. Um, and then, you know, early on, uh, I was involved with Young Life, and my Young Life leader took me to, you know, answers in Genesis back in the 80s were really big back then. And so I think I kind of grew up with an understanding that there was a creator in and so I don't know if evolution was ever a, um, you know, a, a, a big part of my life. And even my biology teacher in high school um, really de-emphasized that. And I think he had a, some Christian background as well. Mm -hmm. So I sort of grew up with an understanding that God created. Um, and that just matured over time as I went through undergraduate. And it was really challenged in undergraduate. Yeah. I'm similar to Terry. I grew up in the Methodist Church, and uh, the sermons were normal. Vincent Peale, you didn't get any truth. So as a kid, I would sit there when they're preaching. I would be reading the hymnal, read the uh, verses of the hymnal. So I learned more theology from that than the, the, the <laughs> preaching. But uh, I never did believe evolution. I remember in freshman high school biology, they were talking about this and you know how from this goes to that. It just didn't connect. It, I, I thought this, it, it just did not connect. I never believed it. And once I became a Christian about 15 years of age, I read some books, and I, I didn't explore too much. I was, you know, as a young Christian, I didn't have much support. When I attended Liberty University, uh, I spent some time with Dwayne Gish, who's now passed on, who's a biochemist, and I spent a couple hours with him. We had a good discussion, and he is more a young earth uh, paradigm guy, uh, along with Henry Morse, and I read those books, and that had, had a big influence. I, I now don't agree with that paradigm now. I'm more, now more old earth, which is fine. It's an in-house debate among Christians, but that solidified me uh, on origins and the beginnings, uh, and that's carried with me all the way through uh, undergraduate and graduate school, uh, grad school, med school. Yeah. Very good. Joe? Uh, firstly, I'd like to think that um, no matter what we say up here won't convince you that Christ is real. Uh, it, it has to be um, revealed to you 
and but and then and then so I I always felt it was disingenuous that uh, these scientists would talk about billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of years to cause change, yet never consider the uh, spiritual dimension. Whereas, if you think about it, everything in science is space and time, X, Y, Z axis and time, four dimensions. Whereas the fifth dimension is spiritual. And they cannot get there. How do we, um, um, you know, t incapable of describing things such as subjectivity, feelings, uh, striving for something, music, beauty, those things. If it's survival of the fittest, well, I want that parking spot and I'm going to get it, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, there is no emotional, why do we sing to the Lord? You know, that kind of stuff. So um, I was always listening to this mantra, and I kind of think that evolutionists had their heyday in the 1980s, 1990s, early 2000s, where they would just use that billions and billions of years, and somehow, like Dave would say, that soup would become Hannah Van Kara sitting right there, listening to me today. But really, with when you go into genetics and all that, deletion mutations are lethal. And most commonly, lethality occurs if there's a mutation. Not, I'm not going to mutate. I tried really hard when I was a little boy to stretch at night to become an NBA basketball player. <laughs> and, go, and it didn't happen. So I knew that was not evolution was out. But back to my point. Um, I remember that... Um, um, so, uh, systematic biologists are winning the day now. And that's come out in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, these guys have the Cray supercomputers, the big blue, where they're computating 10 to the 80th power atoms in the, in the universe. Whereas to be in this finely tuned place where we are is 10 to the 2 millionth power. It is so infinitesimal, unbelievably small, that it's, it's, it's unbelievable. And that's where evolution has really lost me. I think evolutionists like Dawkins and those guys are honestly like the uh, Russian commissars that kept the army and their people in check, but they really didn't know what was going on in science, the hot new buttons of what's going on right now. And so they keep keeping you, we will, we will only talk about evolution. You will only publish about things that we can taste and see and not think about the spiritual realm. But now, uh, um, intelligent design things, there are things that they cannot explain, like the eyeball. Mm -hmm. All these highly, uh, highly things, how does this all come together? It's into the tenth to the two hundred, two millionth power type stuff. Yeah, so for, for me, I think I embrace the notion that, you know, Stephen Meyer and all of his books put forward was the so-called uh, design intuition. You know, I, I felt like I've always had that sense. 
And, and, and as I've gone through my studies, I think it's reinforced. So for me in high school, it's kind of the first time that evolution was thrust upon me. And I, I remember distinctly kind of rejecting that. But I can tell you, as, as I got into molecular biology, which has always been a passion for me my entire career, the, the more I study it, the more profound the evidence points to design. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's it, literally absurd. I mean, if you think about the fact that, for example, the human genome, you know, is composed of 6.4 billion DNA base pair, 24,000 genes, 46 chromosomes. The largest novel that exists today uh, has 9,600,000 characters only. I mean, that's just incomprehensible. I mean, wow. and this is code that leads to uh, information. I mean, it's hard, hard for me to reject that. Even when you talk about the very simplest um, organism you can think of, like a cyanobacteria or E. coli. E. coli, for example, has 4,600,000 base pairs, 4,400 genes. Wow. Okay, that, that's a little tough for me to swallow that that's a random act. It's just literally borderline absurd. And, and Ray, uh, you were raised LDS. So in the LDS community, um, evolution is embraced, correct? Or not? In, in the LDS community, uh, evolution is, is embraced, like, it's, it's like, like a theistic kind of evolution, correct? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because, yeah, I mean, in the LDS worldview, you know, they believe that there's lots of worlds, lots of gods, and that they, they kind of they embrace this, you know, always ex the existing, un you know, universe. So, yeah, that was there. Although I will say that, you know, this, the, the strict Darwinianism was somewhat rejected because it does lead to a, yeah. an anti-God position. They would be, I would think, more along the lines of theistic evolutionists, perhaps. Okay. Okay, guys, next, next question, because um, I, I don't want to attack a straw man. So what do you think is the strongest argument for neo-Darwinism, and how would you respond to it? So strongest argument for it, and then what's your, what would be your response? Let's go in reverse order this time. Yeah, so I think this one's challenging, but, but you know, if you look at the, probably the strongest, most compelling argument for evolution, it really is the, the clear evidence that exists in creation for adaptation, right, where you see species making moves in which they can adapt to a changing environment. And, and you can see how that, that would lend itself to potentially the interspecies evolution that Darwin so, you know, so well described. The challenge with all of that, as we now know, unfortunately, for Darwin, there's a, a concept called epigenetics, in which all those adaptations are actually coded for. Hmm. So the ability of the environment to interact with the, 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 the living organism uh, and its ability to draw from a wide variety of adaptation strategies is actually coded for in that DNA. That's why this DNA is so long and is so complex because it has that capability. In fact, one of the things that we're studying extensively in cancers is the effect of epigenetics. For example, when you and I get viral infections, some portion of that virus DNA gets uploaded into your DNA. And guess what? Some of that you actually pass on to your children. And so many of us have inherited pieces of, of gene fragments from viruses that go way back. So the complexity of the situation is, is astounding. <laughs> you are. <laughs> so, so Ray, when, when, when someone says, the, 
those minor adaptions within a species, um, like Darwin's finches, over billions and billions of years, it does seem plausible that that could lead to a new species. It just takes billions and billions of years. So how would you specifically respond to that line of reasoning? Yeah, so the, the billions and billions of years is problematic because, you know, at the very be there has to be a very beginning point. And when you read Darwin's book on the origin of species, he actually never addresses the origin of the species in the book ever right. because he didn't have an explanation for it. In fact, evolution really can't d deal with that because ultimately when we say primordial soup gave birth to living organisms, that's got to be some pretty amazing soup. Right. That's right. what I'm going to say because, for example, if you take a look at the simplest organism that, that, that almost all evolutionists point to, that's the photosynthetic bacteria, cyanobacteria. Right. But we now know the simplest one has 500,000 DNA base pair. And unfortunately, the enzyme that creates DNA is called DNA polymerase. And in this, even in the simplest DNA polymerase in cyanobacteria has 800 plus amino acid sequence. So the probability that that happened out of primordial soup, out of random chance, is absurd. Right. It's right. literally incomprehensibly absurd. In fact, in, in Stephen Meyer's book, The Guide Hypothesis, he points out that the statistical probability that a single simple amino functional protein made up of 150 amino acids could develop spontaneously would be one to the, uh, let's see, one to the 184th power. What, 10 to the 12th power is a trillion, by the way, just to give you an idea of how absurd the mathematics are. Yeah. So billions and billions of years doesn't help correct that fundamental problem, which is DNA can't live in isolation. It doesn't float around in the soup self-generating. And then you have the DNA polymerase problem, which is unless you can explain to me how DNA polymerase with over 800, in the simplest form, 800 amino acids spontaneously developed, the, the billions of years don't help you. Yeah. By the way, I'm just, I'm just curious. I know, Coy, you're an old earth creationist. Terry, what are you? Or old earth, Joe? And it's okay if you're a young earther. I'm a... I, agnostic? I'm one of the seven orthodox views, I think. <laughs> um, I, there's some serious gaps in there. Okay. I think I'm old earth, okay. probably. Right. Oh, absolutely old earth. I mean, okay. it's you just, you know, when you look at redshift and, and all the ways we can measure the, the how old the universe is. You, you can't argue that everything is 5,000 or 10,000 years old. That's absurd. Yeah. Now, now I, I, I would share that opinion. I'm, I'm an old earther. But with that said, um, I, I, I do think that you can make a legitimate biblical case for a young earth. So there is no official position at GCF. Um, we have elders. I, I think I'm probably alone and being an old earther among the, on the elder board, and that's fine. Uh, because again, this is not a primary issue. This is a secondary issue. Um, what's primary is that God created all things out of nothing for his glory. And, and I, I think uh, evolutionary theory uh, is also does tremendous destruction to the theology of Genesis 1 and 2 and the theology of Romans 5, 12 to 20. So that's much more primary in my mind than the age of the earth. So just to be clear on that. I could speak to that. Uh, I would say that I was young earth most of my life from uh, my time at Liberty to about 2004 or five when I was influenced by Dan Bakken who visited our church is, is right now teaching over at Colbert Chapel yeah. on the Shroud Turin. He's doing a Sunday school class on the Shroud Turin okay. in archeology. span 
he was very kind to me. I was in a little, a little group of his. Uh, I was the token young, young earther, and they were really nice to me. Uh, but as I began to read things, I, I, I just had some changes. And actually, I used to belong to the ICR group, Institute for Creation Research. And their reaction to Hugh Ross was so anti-Christian, it kind of helped throw me toward the old earth persuasion. But I agree, that discussion is a separate discussion. It's a, it should be an in-house discussion among believers. Amen. Over a cup of coffee. It should, it, you know, this is not the same as theistic evolution. Right. Because there's old, most people like Hugh Ross and the reasons to believe they totally reject theistic evolution. So it's an in-house debate. Um, right. Uh, an example of that was we were at the uh, Ken Ham's uh, Noah, the Flood Museum, the Flood and Creation Museum in October. And it's, it's impressive. You should, you should go see it. Well, I saw Ken Ham spoke to him, and he, even my wife, Nancy, she was kind of uh, turned off by his attitude. Uh, he was pretty, pretty much against uh, old earth creationist. Yeah. He was very outspoken against it, but we said that in love, and I thank God for what he's done, what he's done there, but sometimes they get pretty, up, they get pretty antagonistic towards yeah. people who don't see that, par that, that view. And, and among conservative evangelicals that affirm inerrancy, there's at least six different views on those yomes, or days of Genesis 1. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a tricky conversation, but we're, we're digressing. Okay, uh, back to uh, my question, and that is, what is the strongest argument for neo-Darwinism, and how would you respond? Uh, Ray's already answered the question. How about you three? What would you say to that question? Terry? I'd say the same, the strength of the adaptation that you have variations within a species. Um, in Darwinian evolution, takes that all the way through time. Hold that close to your... There you go. There. Uh, so Darwin took that through time and, and coupled with millions of years. But the fossil record really doesn't show that. Uh, right. So species are really sort of like rubber bands in a way. You can stretch them, but instead of stretching forever, they come to a place where they, they break. Environmental pressures will cause extinction, and that's exactly what we see in the fossil record is, is uh, species going extinct without uh, um, uh, transitional fossils. Right. So really that whole idea of a tree that we learned in high school and college biology you know, it's not really, the, the tree of life is not a tree, it's not a bush, it's more like a, a lawn, where right. God created according to their kind, they grew up, and at some point in time, they went extinct when environmental pressures became too severe. Yeah. Okay. Joe? I don't think they have a leg to stand on, really, but... Uh... You know, they're always assuming that evolution is you're evolving. There's that word evolving from a single cell organism to the elite status of my wife sitting even there today. You know, but, but the thing is, there's cells that are... <laughs> and she is highly evolved, isn't she, Joe? Yes. <laughs> but the, but the, the point is, there's still happy single-celled organisms out there that are quite happy. So they tell me. But, the, but, but then there's multi-celled things that are, you know, and the thing is, why doesn't a virus evolve to something else? Because it's kind of like the lawn theory, you know, we, they're developmentally and stuff, but we don't develop into a new species. There's, you know, you can take a Hereford and a Charlet and get a white-faced uh, 
beef or something, but you're not changing the species. You're not going from a, a, a Hereford to a camel. The thing is, they don't have babies. And the thing is, never has been able. There's sterility and deletion mutations and all sorts of things. So I, I don't, I'm kind of at that thing. I think they're um, shooting, shooting, seeing what sticks on the wall kind of thing. Coy? I have memories when I... Coy, uh, hold that. Don't be afraid of the mic. Hold it nice I, and close. There we go. When I was, uh, got out of the Navy in 76, I went, took a semester at Lynchburg College uh, and took a course in comparative anatomy and then histology. And the professor in comparative anatomy was a, a staunch evolutionist. And there was this constant stress on morphology, like the hand. Human hand, ape hand, and, you know, other... Uh, Beyond primates and other, other uh, like, uh, you know, the horse, hooves, the similarities, and they use that as an argument for evolution. It, it's a shallow argument because you could turn that around and say, well, there's design, and a designer could do it that way. Right. But I guarantee you, each of those on the hand itself, whether it be the horse's hoof or dog's paw or a primate's uh, uh, hand, which does not have an opposable thumb, there is incredible, incredible fine-tuning that's yeah. programmed into that. Yeah. And random process cannot bring that about. So a, a similar issue, Darwinists often say that the similarity in DNA between a monkey and a human is 98% similarity in DNA. So therefore, they must have evolved from the same base pair. How would you respond to that? Yeah, so... I that's that's actually a, a fairly strong argument in evolution to say that we, you know, all living organisms have DNA, right? So DNA is the written code for all living organisms. So it kind of seems on the surface plausible that you could have some sort of adaptation. But here's the problem: the most simple organisms that exist are the more are actually more complicated. I don't know if you knew this, but a little fun fact is that amoeba Proteus has 290 billion. DNA base pair. Wow. That's actually more than humans by orders of magnitude, right? We said 6.4 billion DNA base pair for humans. Amoeba have 290 million. A mosquito has uh, 260 million DNA base pair. So every time you slap that, boy, what a shame. That's a lot. <laughs> that's, an, that's a lot of design. You just destroyed. <laughs> mosquito turned at the fall. <laughs> that's right. But, but I mean, it's, it's uh, so, so, uh, on the surface, it seems plausible, especially remember when did Darwin hatch his theory? In the 1860s, 70s timeframe, nothing was known about that, even though the first inkling of DNA discovery occurred in 1869. It wasn't really until Watson and Crick in 1953 that we understood how complex the DNA molecule is. Yeah. So I think that, that, that's, that to me is the, 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 the problem with all that is the most simple organisms we have are incredibly complex. Yeah, yeah, Joe. Quick comment. I think this more it points more toward intelligent design. God used DNA, and why not? Why can't he develop using DNA? Why to make a bacteria? He can also make a human, but also he can do different kinds of hooves or something like that. I don't see a uh, a stretch there to say intelligent design created it all. Yeah. Yeah, in summary, similar parts can also indicate one designer. Terry, what were you going to say about... Just that, yeah. exactly. And then, it, uh, 
a change in species through adaptation. If you think about it, if you had like a horse-like creature that was evolving into a giraffe, you're talking about mutations in the skeletal system, mutations in the muscular system, vascular system, all occur nervous system, all occurring in, in perfect unity in order to get, you know, a creature that has a neck that's three centimeters longer. And so the, the possibility of that is, um, you know, through mutation, through natural selection, is, is really absurd. Yeah. Okay, next question. I know Terry has some videos he wants to show. So the next question is, what, what do you guys think is the strongest argument for um, intelligent design and the biblical view of creation? And Terry, he's been dying to show these videos all week. There we go. Awesome. Okay. So this is uh, this is a DNA. Terry, can you use your mic so they can hear you? Uh, this is a, a DNA or DNA polymerase, and uh, and so this is a complex that that we have, and it's going on in every cell that's dividing in your body, um, and followed by a helicase. I'm going to turn off the sound, and I think the, the most compelling when you see molecular machines. I mean, these are incredibly um, uh, fine-tuned machines. I'm just going to turn this on. Um, that we have, and this is, this is just a simple system, and we've got hundreds of thousands of systems like this, all working together to accomplish what uh, needs, in this case, it's uh, uh, replicating DNA. Um, that helicase, that blue thing you see there, turns as fast as a jet engine. Wow. Um, two uh, DNA polymerases are working, one for each strand, because our, our DNA is double-stranded. So you're talking about just incredible organization. And for me personally, the thought that this uh, occurred uh, by chance is just astronomical. This is another process, a short video. Um, and researchers have taken the structure of these to be able to show what they actually do inside of it. But it's like a little molecule walking. <laughs> and we look at that and we go, that's created. How can it be otherwise? And it's just to come, I mean, it gets you kind of at a gut level that there are systems that could only come about. And there's really no purpose of these when we talk about irreducible complexity. There's no purpose for the individual pieces, but somehow they've come together to form something that is, that is wonderful. One more, one more real quick video. Um, this is the flagella. And um, this, uh, in some bacterial systems, the, these will turn 100,000 uh, revolutions per minute. They can stop at a quarter turn and almost instantaneously go 100,000 uh, revolutions permitted in the other direction. All, and this is a motor. It's got stators. It's got uh, bushings. It's got bearings. I mean, this is a molecular machine that, um, that there's no purpose for these individual components on their own. So to come together in a system like this is, is truly, I mean, it's astronomical. It, things like this don't happen. They, they are... They're created by a designer. And so out of all the arguments, when you look at, at molecular biology and the machines of this, so imagine a, a watch with a, a gear that's 
very, very small and we marvel at it. These are a million times smaller. And uh, so, you know, when you're talking about the uh, evidence for creation, it's, it's in molecular biology. It's so, in the machines that God has created. So, Terry, um, Michael B. He's book Darwin's Black Box, made that little motor very famous. Yeah. And in that book, he describes irreducible complexity, which I think is an incredibly powerful argument. I, explain to the group um, what that concept means, irreducible complexity. I, I talked about it quite a bit, I think, a week or two ago, but I'd, I'd love to have you guys just kind of reinforce this argument of irreducible complexity. Yeah, so the, the, if we could put that video up again, just for the flagella, and you, you'll notice um, a lot of different pieces in there. And there, this is a system that is created all together, one unit. If you take any one of those pieces out, it ceases to function. And so irreducible complexity, in other words, there's no step-by-step -step process to get to something so complex. Uh, same with DNA replication. Same with taking sunlight and turning it into chemical energy in uh, glucose. There's no step-by-step -step way to get there. In other words, it was created all as one unit, and you can't break those units down. And that's kind of the, the latest in evolutionary molecular biology is to try to find, okay, well, maybe this had a function in the cell wall, and then this somehow connected with that, and you have a flagella. Yeah. In other words, you can't, you can't break this down into more simple steps. And, and, and to be clear, neo-Darwinism teaches that things evolve very slowly over time through multiple small adaptions. That, that's why this is so important, yeah. is because that process of billions of years of multiple small adaptions step by step cannot explain irreducible complexity. Because this motor, if one piece is missing, it ceases to function. Exactly. And it will cease to evolve. Yep. Anything else you guys want to say about this? Ray? If, if I could, I'd just like to say something about irreducible complexity. Just expand on what Terry was saying, because I think it's one of the most powerful uh, aspects of intelligent design that, that sometimes gets glossed over, is that if you take the simplest organisms I mentioned earlier, we now know, and this is relatively recently know, that these, these are incredibly complicated. But the other thing is they can't have been parted out. In other words, it's not like you know the DNA was going through its random chance in the swamp and the primordial soup, and again, amazing soup. But, but that, that what that couldn't have happened, right? You had to have everything together, like you had to have a, a cell membrane. You had to have a, a, a nuclear membrane. You had to have the nucleus. You had to have ribosomes. There's all these various minimums, and a, and a challenge for irreducible minima is the minimum keeps getting higher. It keeps going up. So in order for a single cell to exist, the things that would have to, have to happen are thousands or tens of thousands of individual pieces would have to come together simultaneously. So in other words, when you think in chicken, chicken versus the, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg, it's that ultimate essence. There's no question that in, in the entire organism had to literally appear because there's no other explanation. So is the chicken. <laughs> is that a yes or a no? He was, he's afraid to answer. No, the organism had to come first. I mean, literally. The chicken. Yeah, the chicken had to come first. Ray has solved the age-old yeah. question. Yes. Science, science supports the fact that, yeah, the organism, the, the organism had to exist. Joe. Um, you know, looking at that, you see your, these different, when there's C, heliocase and all these things with the ASE, those are enzymes that themselves have to be made. 
And the, and the thing is, all these make proteins, they make everything, and it's just amazing. But Darwin was so frustrated on his deathbed because when he saw the peacock feather, it, 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 it just drove him nuts. Why? Because it reminded him of the eye, the human eye. And to think that I can take in light, flip it through a lens, throw it back onto my retina, neurotransmitters and send it to my brain, and somehow I developed that you're wearing blue sweater and there's a red sweater out there and stuff like that, and I can see things along with ears and everything else. It's just so irreducibly complex that now, with like I mentioned earlier, systematic biologists or whatever you want to call them, those guys that sit in those uh, huge rooms with computers, they, they, they buy time to calculate this stuff. And it's too complex. You can't wrap, it's kind of like our economy. How many trillions of dollars? Trillions and trillions and trillions. You go like, I can't palpate that anymore. And so we're talking about 10 to the 2 millionth power, 10 to the 80th power atoms in the universe. It, the chances of this are so, why not just believe? That's all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> Coy, go ahead. Uh, I, I think, like you Closer, said, Coy, don't be afraid. The, bi the biggest argument we have is fine-tuning argument. Yeah. And we've been, the focus has been mostly biological evolution, but going back to physics, um, let me give, give you two examples. Uh, the gravitational constant. Uh, if you took a yardstick, the, if, they, if, if you say the universe is 13.4 billion years old, so you take the yardstick to the one end of the universe, and it's still expanding, to, and then the, other, the yardstick to the other end, end of the universe, you had a point right here. If you moved that point one inch either way on the gravitational constant, what that setting is, it would throw everything off. You wouldn't have life. You wouldn't yeah. have much, you couldn't have uh, a planetary formation. Right. Another example, this morning I got up, re reviewed my astronomy textbook, and for, uh, you know, in an old, uh, young Earthers would say God made the elements as they are, you know, all the elements like on the periodic chart. All Earthers would say God used stellar nuclear synthesis through supernova. But if you if you look at that, uh, the formation of uh, heavier elements beyond uh, beyond uh, helium and hydrogen, it's incredibly complex that comes out of supernova, and that's a very complex uh, process yeah. that comes out of. So when astronomers say we're all from stardust. That's what we're referring to. Now, God did it, and it's designed, and the, there's such fine-tuning to that. It's not just a random process. It's very fine-tuned. Right. And those, those conditions, that, uh, in Eric Metaxas's most recent book, he argues there's over 200 conditions. When, uh, when Carl Sagan did his, his show back in the 80s, what was it called? Um, the Cosmos. He thought there were, there were two conditions for life. Now there's over 200 and the odds of all those being in existence at the same time is one out of 10 to the 150th power. Again, how many atoms in the known universe? 10 to the 80th or 85th power. So the odds of those conditions all being in place, it's called the Goldilocks principle, for it to be just right on planet Earth, are insurmountably massive. So that, that's an incredibly, and by the way, Anthony Flew, 20th century's greatest atheist was con converted to theism on this argument. Terry. Well, and, and instead of, um, you know, all of the, the fine-tuning argument, 
instead of believing that there's a, a fine tuner, someone there who has been, you know, putting the dials exactly where they need to be, you, you have a, an idea of the multiverse. Right. And so we're one of an infinite number of universes, and one of them is just going to be perfect. And we just happen to be in that perfect universe with all the, all the um, you know, all the variables and constants perfect for life. Instead of believing in saying we have a designer, yeah. we have a creator. And, and there's this much evidence for the multiverse theory. It's non-existent. No. Okay, guys, we have three minutes, two minutes left now. Um, I have like three questions left. Which one should I ask? Um, well, why don't you guys just make some final comments? And, and that can be referring to resources that have been helpful. That can be answering the question, why is this issue so important? Wherever you want to take it, each have one minute. Closing comments. I, uh, what I tell my kids over at Spokane Classical is um, I want them to have a worldview where God is intimately involved with every aspect of their lives. So when, you know, when they eat a peach that tastes really good, it automatically, they give glory to God, knowing that he's holding all things together. And, you know, the, the laws of nature don't occur on their own. Um, the laws of nature are what God is doing in his creation right now. And so that kind of a worldview automatically gives glory to God and would just encourage you that, the, you know, my phone, if I drop it, it doesn't drop because of gravity. It drops because God wills it to drop. I think worldviews have implications. Uh, and this is a major implication that we, worldview we have to deal with and we need to really know our stuff on this. Examples, my oldest son, who grew up in a Christian home, attended Trinity Western University in Langley, B.C., which was a Christian school, much more Christian than, say, Whitworth. But I began to be suspicious when they, they did not want Hugh Ross to speak. Hugh mm. Ross is a graduate university of uh, B.C. with his doctorate in astrophysics. They did not want him to speak. It turns out they were pretty much in the, science, in the biological department. Uh, they were uh, uh, theistic evolutionists. So my son bought into that, and when he graduated, he later said, well, you don't need God. He just chucked it all and became an evolutionist. Mm. So these, this is really a critical issue we need, as the church, need to deal with. I specifically, I, do, I, I, I respect young earthers. I was one. I, I have friends who are that. That's great. Praise God. Paul Nelson at Discovery uh, Institute is a young earther. Uh, but... As far as uh, I, I have a lot of respect for Discovery Institute, and also Hugh Ross, his reasons to believe his book, Created in the Cosmos, is an excellent book that deals with this. This is in its fifth rendition. Uh, he's written many other books also. Uh, those are good resources. Great. Joe? Evolution is purposeless. And um, if you really philosophically chew on that, why live, honestly? And so, because um, you're going to die and be brought back to dust sometimes. So, with that dire thought, um, one book that I find probably the best one for me, and it's very readable, it's thick, but, but it, the bit on creation and all of its uh, orthodox views is very fair. Yeah. And, oh, sorry. So it's, it's Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, second edition, 
And the second edition has a fantastic chapter on this, all these issues. It's probably the best, shortest summary of arguments uh, for intelligent design, for creation. So if you're looking for one like place to read one very long chapter, it's probably the best place to go. And it's very readable. And I, I just want to leave one, one paragraph from my very favorite book of all time. Dan King knows about it, Pilgrim's Progress. But the thing is, I already figured out my epitaph statement on this from this book. But here is his 1600s, and he goes, at the very end, he goes, after they get to heaven, or the celestial kingdom, he goes, there, all the treasures of the universe will be open to the study of God's redeemed. Unfettered by mortality, you shall wing your tireless flight to worlds afar. With unutterable delight, the children of earth shall enter into the joy and the wisdom of unfallen beings. You shall share the treasures of knowledge and understanding gained through ages upon ages in contemplation of God's handiwork. With undimmed vision, you shall gaze upon the glory of creation, suns and stars and systems all in their appointed order, circling the throne of deity. Upon all things, from the least to the greatest, you shall see the Creator's name written, and in all you will see display the riches of his power. I want to be there. And, Amen. Uh, Amen. you know, the understanding, we, we chew on things like, oh, does a cow become a horse? Or something like that in our finite brains when all that we have all this time to just be wow in unfettered majesty with our our heavenly father someday and all these things just opening up the handiwork in our infinite um, minds in the future where right now we are seeing through glass dimly and we are very finite thanks right god ray yeah so my response is that when I look at the evidence that we have before us, the evidence for design is, is overwhelming. From the fact that we have atoms that are put together in, in a format in which we have 118 known elements in the periodic table of elements. Everything that exists is made up of some combination of those things. In the, in the living organisms, we have four nucleotide base pair. We have RNA, four nucleotide base pair. We have 21 amino acids that, are for, that form a, a code. All of these things are layers upon layers of code, code that gives rise to, to things. So, the, the, it, you know, it's, it's overwhelming to say that we have intelligent design. The issue is why does it seem such a struggle to accept the overwhelming evidence? And we see evidence of this throughout human history. Because the other aspect that is more difficult to scientifically measure, as we mentioned before, is spiritual energy. It's sin. It's, it's the, the innate desire within us to be gods ourselves, just like back in the original, in the garden. And I'm reminded when I kind of, of Pascal's wager. And Blaise Pascal, as you may know, uh, was the father of modern calculus. He was also a, 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 a deep Christ follower. Um, and he issued the, this wager that I think is an insurmountable one to those who struggle with this evidence. And that is that, you know, if, if Carl Sagan and the evolutionists are, are right and I'm wrong, I got nothing to lose, right? I'm just cosmic dirt. You know, maybe I missed out on having a good hedonistic time. Okay, who cares, right? No, nothing matters anyway. 
But, but, but if, if, if the evolutionists are right and I'm wrong, I lose nothing. But if Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him, then you, my friend, would lose everything. Amen. And I think Pascal's wager is something we should all put forward to people who are struggling with this. Evidence is insurmountable for design. The problem is, why is it so difficult to accept that there is a God? That's the, that's the spiritual challenge. And the science of spirituality is really not there. Amen. Amen. Good note to end on. Let's thank our highly esteemed panel. Let me, let me close this in prayer. Father, we, we do thank you that you have made it so clear to us through biology and chemistry and astronomy and physics that you are real. According to Romans 1, none of us have any excuses. You've made it abundantly clear through creation that you exist, that you're powerful, that you're wise, that you're creative, and that you're beautiful. Lord, to help us to worship you in light of the things we see around us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget, next week, 845, members meeting. <laughs>